Welcome to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 78 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, The Right Take on Entertainment. This week we're speaking with Joe Bob Briggs, the B-movie guru set to host his very last movie marathon this month. This week's show is sponsored by James Wood's ex-agent. He's available for all clients, assuming they don't share the same views as half the nation. Before my chat with Joe Bob, I wanted to share some chilling news about the Hollywood blacklist. Wait, what's that? Didn't that end in the 1950s? Au contraire, my friend. There's a new movie blacklist, and it's just as nasty as the last one, except this one not getting as much attention. Now, there's an upcoming film production based on the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, and it appears that it strongly favors the pro-life side of the argument. That can't stand, apparently. According to a story in The Hollywood Reporter, cast and crew members have left the project in a huff. One electrician specifically cursed out the director before leaving the gig. Colleges are refusing to let production use their property. One crew member says that peer pressure caused her to leave the project. Hmm. It's just the latest example of how conservatives are treated like second-class citizens or much worse in Hollywood. Why? They don't toe the progressive line, so they must be punished, ostracized, made an example of. Of course, the media doesn't care. They snickered at the whole situation. They also snickered at the fact that James Woods' agent left him on the 4th of July, threatening some sort of liberal rant that he held back. I guess he didn't want to have, uh, he didn't want his client to have too bad a day, but you know exactly what was going on there. Now, you're not going to see any actors marching to defend James Woods or even movies like this Roe v. Wade film, which is untitled as of right now. You won't see any marches where, hey, we need to let people make the movies they want to make, even if they don't agree with our, our, our ideology. For liberal stars, marches are all about Trump, not free expression. Now, this latest story, as chilling as it is, is hardly new. Every year or so, there's a new story just like it. Actors fearful of letting their conservative views get publicized because they, they may lose jobs as a result. Other sort of ostracizing situations. Every other year, if not more, we get the same story. There's a little bit of hand-wringing mixed in at best, Does it spark some concern? Does it spark any actors saying this is wrong, this cannot stand? No. Does it spark any other media outlets kind of piling on and saying, what's going on? Why is this happening? What can we do about it? No. You know, actors have every right to be afraid of losing their gigs in general. Finding work in Hollywood is tough. If you're an actress, there's always someone younger and prettier coming up the ranks. If you're an actor, same situation. At some point, people want to see new faces. At some point, people think, oh, this actor's getting old. I don't know if I want to see him or her in a particular movie. I want a younger, younger, more attractive star uh, behind the scenes or in front of the camera. That's what matters. For every A-lister who's on top of the world right now, tomorrow could be a different story, and they could be scrambling for new jobs. The competition is that fierce. That's why I have a lot of sympathy for the actors and the directors and all the people who work in Hollywood. They've really picked a very tough profession, and yes... It does pay quite nicely, but that's for the top of the top. For everyone else, it's waiting tables and waiting for their next big chance that may not happen. Now, imagine if you had all of that facing you and you had to hide your political views. That makes it even harder. 
and more scary, to be honest. Now, what's going on right now is a form of blacklist, plain and simple. And you know what? Until we hear someone or anyone from Hollywood kicking up a storm about it, I think they're quietly consenting to it. Heck, they might even be cheering it from the comfort of their own homes. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to my daddy's podcast. Here's a celebrity tweet of the week. This week's winner is a twofer from Stephen King, the horror maestro who attempted to bring people together for the recent 4th of July holiday. Well, good on him, but didn't really work out so well. Here is his first tweet. Progressives, go find a Trump-supporting friend, the one you haven't spoken to since November of 2016, and give him or her a hug. Trumpies, find a liberal snowflake friend and do the same. Just for today, let's all be Americans. Now, there's a lot to dissect about that quote, but you know what? At least he's kind of leaning in the proper direction. At least he's calling for civility in some pretty uncivil times, but suffice to say it didn't go over well. Shocking, right? Who knew social media could be so mean? Naturally, he blamed a certain president for that. Here's his follow-up tweet. Responses to my 4th of July tweet suggest that politically-minded Americans aren't willing to drop their grudges and talking points for even a single day. If Russia isn't paying Trump, they should start, because he's doing a hell of a job of dividing us. Well, here's a truth bomb, Stephen. Your tweets have fueled the left's rage against Trump for months and months, so please take a bow for your role in dividing the nation. It isn't just on Trump's back. You're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. My hit tip of the week is How Jack Became Black. I caught a screening of this documentary a few months ago, and I rewatched it recently because I wanted to write an official review at HollywoodInToto.com. Shameless plug alert. Director Eli Steele is white and black and Jewish and deaf. His ex-wife was Hispanic, so his two very cute kids are a hodgepodge of nationalities. Only that isn't good enough for the local school district. The early scenes in the movie show him trying to get his kid enrolled in school, but there's a problem. He's got to pick a box. Black, white, Hispanic, other? He doesn't know what to do. It's kind of confusing, but the school insists he pick a box. And that's how this really smart, sophisticated look at the folly of identity politics begins. How Jack Became Black is one of the year's best films. It really expertly mixes the personal anecdotes about Eli Steele, his life, his children, his personal stories, into the national debate. He speaks to other people who are mixed race as well, and they have some really fascinating comments, but there's just so much to recommend this movie. In fact, the section on Trayvon Martin and how the media covered that particular tragedy alone, it's worth the price of admission here. And best of all, Eli Steele allows other voices to enter the debate as well. It's very clear where he's coming from. It's very clear where the documentary is steering us as far as identity politics and how critical it is of that particular program. But other people have their say too. They aren't mocked. They aren't taken out of context. They aren't made to look silly with some selective editing. They just speak their piece. You could hear it all and you could watch and judge for yourself. That's something Michael Moore could never do. Ever, ever, ever. But you know what? It makes it a much better film due to that balance. How Jack Became Black is available now on select video-on-demand services. Highly recommended.
And now let's get to the HitCast feature interview. How many movie lovers grew up watching Joe Bob Briggs riff on B-movies from the comfort of his lounge chair? The movie Maven hosted Joe, Bob, Joe Bob's Drive-In Theater on TMC, a loving ode to grindhouse-style movies, and later a similarly-themed Monster Vision. Now he's bringing back his marathon madness for one last time. Shudder is hosting the last drive-in with Joe Bob Briggs on July 13th, 13 horror classics that match Joe Bob's unique sense of humor. It's all starting at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. How did he pick those films? What does he think about woke film critics? Stay tuned, you're about to find out. Here's my interview with Joe Bob Briggs. All right. Well, Joe Bob, thanks so much for joining the show. You know, a last drive-in marathon. I'm kind of curious, over the years you've done variations of this, does your criteria change over the years? I mean, have you kind of what you maybe would have chosen 10 or 20 years ago? Is it, is it different than it is today? You mean the movies? Yeah. Or yeah. what I thought? Uh, the movie, I know your style is very much, uh, you know, on target. But as far as the movie selection, I mean, is what really appealed to you a decade ago the same as it is today? Or, or sort of the, uh, are the tastes you have maybe evolving or changing or just uh, different? Well, the same genres appealed to me that have always appealed to me. Uh, you know, exploitation films. I mean, I also like, you know, weird foreign art films. Nobody wants to hear me talk about those. <laughs> so, but, um, uh, but yeah, uh, horror, I mean, this thing I'm doing is for a horror network, so obviously it's all horror. But, but um, uh, what, they, what they fashionably today call genre films were always called exploitation films in the in the 80s and going back to the 30s you know um but now they i guess we don't have exploitation films anymore so they're called genre films but uh, uh horror sci-fi action um there used to be a lot of softcore sex comedy or what you call sex sparse or high school sex comedy or college sex comedy or whatever they don't so much make those anymore, but um, that was always one of the genres that I reviewed. Um, so yeah, all of those, all of those, I've always uh, um, enjoyed all of them. And, and of course, you know, they mix together and new genres evolve. And uh, I don't like torture porn and you know the, the more extreme um, uh, violent version, you know, violent. Evolutions of some of these genres that have that have um, uh, come out in in the past two decades. Yeah. Now, obviously, this is this has been your bread and butter for quite some time. These kinds of movies. Where did where do they stand today? I mean, you don't see the major filmmakers usually making a B movie, for lack of a better phrase. But I'm sure there are filmmakers doing stuff that's similar. Well, who do you kind of point to as a fan of these movies and say, hey, he or she? They get it. They get the spirit. They get the, the, the zest of what I, of the kind of movies that I really enjoy. Well, these movies have entered the mainstream, so uh, Guillermo del Toro gets it. I mm-hmm. mean, he's, he, you know, uh, 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 the, the, the movie that won the Academy Award is a monster movie. <laughs> That's true. I, I don't think that would have happened uh, uh, even 10 years ago, much less 20 years ago. So, um, so we have that phenomenon, you know, at that end of the business, we have sort of uh, all these horror elements that have entered into mainstream movies. And then at the other end, we have, you know, we have 
thousands and thousands of guys out there making movies for $10,000, $20,000, you know, and most of them are really, really bad. Uh, because of my position in the industry, I have to watch a lot of them. <laughs> and so I'm at, and I'm at a lot of uh, festivals and conventions and places where they're shown. And um, you would think that once the technology for filmmaking became really, really cheap, then we would have a lot of, you know, we, we would have a hundred great movies a year uh, simply by the odds of that many people making cheap movies. Uh, a certain number of them have to be good. No, that has not turned out to be the case. Um, uh, there's something about the, um, uh, uh, you know, the, for some reason, the, the, the guys that make them stop going to film school. Uh, you know, uh, they've got the technology, but they don't have the the, uh, the technique yet. Uh, I still think that there will be a renaissance of genre films from the low end of the of the of, of the business, from the guys who uh, they just got five thousand dollars, they have to make the movie with their friends. Um, I think there will be a lot of good stuff come up from that, mm-hmm. but it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, when, when you're dealing with filmmakers, maybe they really tried and it, <laughs> you could say they really failed, and they approach you as a public event and say, "What do you think?" And what they, I'm sure they revere you and they really want your opinion, but. Do you kind of do you kind of lay it on thick? Do you kind of dance around the fact that it's not very good? How do you handle those situations? No, I, I always tell them the truth. I mean, I always watch the film and I tell them the truth. And 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 uh, you know, usually they complain that they didn't have any money and that that's the problem that they have. And I usually point out to them that the things that are wrong with their movie have nothing to do with the, with the parts that cost money. You know, the, the, the things that are wrong have to do with the script, you know, the script development, with the uh, acting choices that they've made, with the uh, with, with um, uh, fundamental things like art direction. Um, and so, um, uh, they, you know, uh, they, they, as, long as, as long as it's done in the spirit of uh, we're all in this together, mm-hmm. um, they they take the criticism well and and I'm doing it because I think that I think that a lot of these guys have the have the technique you know they have the skills to do um, um, to make great movies as directors but they're not writers mm-hmm. and they're not good with actors and they're not they're, they're you know movies is a collaborative art and they have to. Have partners, <laughs> yeah, and not try to do everything themselves. Gotcha. You, you said that you, you prefer to watch new horror stories than reboots, and often the, the great movies they're rooted in their time. They speak to the era, and you know you can remake them, but it doesn't really capture what was happening at the moment. I was kind of curious. There's been a lot of good horror movies in recent years. I, do any kind of jump out at you as saying, "Hey, this really does kind of evoke where we are in society today." Well, certainly, I mean, the obvious example of that is uh, Get Out, mm-hmm. because um, there's, a, there's a movie in which, uh, in, you know, anybody who watches it um, identifies with the, with, with the um, uh, black person in a white society, and it's, done, and it's done with horror elements. And so that's a very, 
you know, that's obviously very topical. It's almost too heavy-handed, though. I mean, it's almost too much. Um, however, it was, it was done so well and so with such skill that um, uh, that, that that's one that we'll remember for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think. Um, uh, oh boy, what's what's I, I I don't I can't. Great horror movies are rare. Mm-hmm. You know, one one comes along every um, couple of years, and um, and uh, so you know there have been a lot of good ones. Um, I think yet I think you know people don't want to celebrate it because it makes so much money. You know, it's that reverse snobbery of the horror <laughs> That's world. Right. But but uh, but uh, it was. I, I I can't ever remember a movie that had, that is com- the complete cast is child actors, uh, six child actors. There's no there are no grown ups in the movie. I mean, there are some minor supporting parts played by grown ups. Um, that director carried off you know an amazing feat of <laughs> doing that movie with six child actors, and um, uh, that is the it's it's a great movie. It has problems. I mean, you know, it relies a little bit too much on jump scares, but um, still, it 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 really delivers what people expected it to deliver. Mm-hmm. And that is a remake. That is a, a reboot of something from the. I think he wrote the book in the eighties. So, um, yeah, it's kind of rooted uh, there, but you know, there's always modern sensibilities that sneak into the frame as well. Exactly, yeah. especially the, the child abuse aspect and the and the um, um, pedophilia, the implied pedophilia, and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think your entire persona has been kind of a, a gentle ribbing at the more serious, sober film critics, and you know, uh, just throughout your career. I think there is what your take on film critics today, because I read a lot of reviews. Uh, I'm a critic myself, and. It'll, they'll often include, well, this movie didn't have enough people of color in it, and that's a, that's a demerit. Or it might say, you know, it, it's not fair to uh, categorize an entire population like they did with the Amy Schumer comic snatched. I mean, what's your take on where, where yeah. things are going these days? Well, that's just identity politics uh, infiltrating uh, criticism, just like the academic world and infiltrates uh, uh, criticism. I mean, <laughs> I got a book recently uh, about the movie I Spit on Your Grave that was published by Columbia University Press. I was like, what? <laughs> a whole book on I Spit on Your Grave published by an academic press? But yes, I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like, I don't know what happened between, you know, when I started and the, the movies were considered uh, disposable trash that should that were beneath the dignity of any review uh, to today where people are writing dissertations about um, uh, about a movie like that. Um, but, um, I mean, in, in, in general, uh, uh, what you're talking about, those types of reviews are reviews where they're taking the movies and trying to uh, use them to make points about society or points about the culture. And so it's not really a movie review, it's an essay. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. You know, they're, 
There's like thousands and thousands of reviews now on the web, and every reviewer has to find his particular niche in his particular place. But um, but that's not ever what I was about. I was always about the movie, this movie, the effect of this movie. Is it fun? Is it entertaining? Do we love it? Do we hate it? That that's that's what I was always dealing with. Nothing nothing in a larger context. <laughs> Well, that that's ultimately serves the, the the viewer, so that's the in in theory that's what movie reviewers are supposed to do. But I guess sometimes they things really? get far afield. Uh, we're we're talking with Joe Bob Briggs, the B movie guru and host of Shutters, the last drive-in with Joe Bob Briggs, coming July thirteenth. I, I was wondering, you know, the technology behind movies has changed so much, and even in the last five or ten years, if my son would rather watch a film on his tablet than our sixty-five inch TV, which drives me crazy. What's been the best change for you with all the technology? I mean, there's, there's good things, there's bad things, but as a movie lover like you are, what's been the best? Well, the best thing for a critic is the fact that everything is available. It, I mean, almost everything is available. So um, as you go back and you want to find, you know, old movies, uh, uh, you can generally find them. You cannot find them on Netflix, oddly enough. Uh, Netflix is the worst place to go look for historical stuff. Uh, but you can, but you can find them somewhere, you know. And so, uh, the fact that everything is preserved is a, is a very good thing about the, about the technology. Um, you know, as, as recently as 20 years ago, we were worried about many of these movies, uh, disappearing, you know, as most of the movies of the silent era disappeared. Because they just simply there weren't enough preservation efforts to uh, preserve those prints. Well, that's not a problem anymore because digital allows us to preserve it in some form. And we should we should go ahead and preserve the 35 millimeter print also, you know, because many people today have never even watched the 35 millimeter mm-hmm. print. But um, uh, so so that's 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 the great thing about digital technology is that. Uh, it's all there, and especially for a, jo- a genre like horror, horror fans, they don't want to just see this year's horror movies. They want to see every horror movie ever made, <laughs> and, so, and so finally they can. Yeah. There's a local drive-in here in Denver, but obviously they're, they're vanishing across the country. Is there any chance for a rebirth? Is it happening on some level, do you think, or what's your take on sort of that? Yeah, it is happening, as a matter of fact. I mean, really, it's leveled off the past 20 years. I mean, there are about 350 drive-ins. There have been 350 drive-ins for about the past 20 years. Some of them fade away. Some new ones are opened. Uh, sometimes the, the um, drive-in is abandoned, but then the grandkids of the original owners reopen it. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, one just opened last week in Kentucky. Uh, um, I, I think that... Um, They'll always be out there somewhere, but as the thing that normally kills a drive-in is land values. If it's just in the wrong place and it's more valuable as for a, uh, uh, a Walmart or a used car lot or whatever, then it gets sold, you know, uh, because it's it takes a lot of land to, to for a drive-in. Yeah, and so. Uh, uh, so they tend to uh, survive in places where the economy is not that great. Hmm. <laughs> once the, once the uh, city starts growing up, you know, the drive-in was always at the place where people drove in from the country 
and out from the city. It was right there at the city limits. And so um, as the city grows outward, uh, that land becomes valuable and it gets sold. Uh, if the city is shrinking, the drive-in survives. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to add like Catch-22. Uh, you know, through the years, people have asked me, why do you like horror movies so much? It's my favorite genre. And I often have a little hard time describing why that is. I mean, I, I kind of stumble and bumble through it, and I feel a little guilty saying I, I love watching horror movies. I actually watch them more when I'm stressed out in my life. But from your perspective, do people ask you that? And what's what's your answer? I mean, I mean, on the surface, you would think, oh, you like Oscar bait movies, and you like this movie, and you like documentaries, but I, I feel a little sheepish describing why I love horror movies. And, you know, what's your take on that? Um, I, I can't really explain it either. It's like <laughs> saying, why, why is she your girlfriend? Why is he your boyfriend? Why is, why, you know, it's like, uh, uh, it, it's a it's a personal taste, but, but, um, uh, I, I tell you what, what has always been gratifying to me is when I go to a fan convention or a horror convention and someone will come up to me and say, I want to thank you because you legitimized my interest in movies. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, as they were growing up, they were, they were, they felt guilty about, you know, either because of judgments from their parents or their church or their, you know, their, their, their environment. They felt guilty about liking a certain kind of movie, and then they discovered a show that I was doing or an article I wrote or something, and they were, you know, they felt, oh, it's okay to take these seriously. And so, um, and so, you know, apparently, there's something that, there's something that horror that's an outlaw genre, and so, uh, you have to justify it to your mother. Your mother's never gonna <laughs> like it. <laughs> and so, uh-huh. I think that's what it is. Gotcha. Uh, you, you said in the past you're a big Roger Corman fan, and you really appreciate filmmakers who understand you've got to keep the budget low if you want to make this all work. Now, I, I also know that you, you've been – I don't know if you've delved in or you want to be a film producer on your own terms now. Is there anything you can share about that, and do you have any projects you can you can kind of tease about? Yeah, I do have uh, I, I do have several projects that I'm, that I'm trying to get funding for. They're extremely low budget. And uh, they're based on the Roger Corman principles. I've, I've known Roger for, uh, wow, a lot of years now. <laughs> when I first started writing about drive-in movies, uh, uh, it was conversations with Roger that uh, led me to create things like the drive-in totals and, and the, <laughs> the rules of exploitation and everything, because Roger is great on that stuff. He, he knew all the formulas and all the... Uh, um, uh, all, all the rules of filmmaking. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, the reason I admire him so much is, uh, well, he, I used to, I used to introduce him by saying, you know, he had, he only had one movie that lost money. He made 700 films. He only had one movie that lost money. And, um, uh, that movie was, uh, called The Intruder. And it was a William Shatner film shot in uh, Missouri in 1962 and it was about racism in the small town south and and it and it didn't perform at the box office and roger said he would never again make a movie with a with an obvious uh social uh uh he, he would in other words he would always put the social issues in the subtext mm-hmm. for the rest of his career and that's what he did 
And then in about the year 2012, whoever owns that movie now, um, it's made a sale to England, and it went into the black. (laughs) (laughs) This record is now clean. And so after all these years, he's never made a movie that did not, that, that lost money. Gotcha. So um, I don't think any other filmmaker ever can say that. That's funny. Oh, one last question for you, but let you go. Uh, in the past, you talked about the drive the movie totals. You, you kind of would be, you would admire the, the women in the cast and maybe make some comments about their first sort of a tally. Is, is that something you can't do now with, with your new approach or just because we kind of live in more sensitive times or, or the heck with it, that's that's what I do and I'm going to Well, everyone, doing kind it. Of, every, everyone kind of expects that. <laughs> I mean, um, breast nudity was always a, an element of the slasher film, the horror film, of uh, many of the so-called genre films, and so um, uh, it's—I mean—it's so harmless compared to porn that—that <laughs> that, um, uh, in fact, Roger had a rule about that. He said, you know, he said you need three girls; they need to be—they uh, need to be naked from the waist up uh, four times in the movie. The lead girl has to be naked twice, and the, and the supporting girls have to be naked one time each. And if you do that, uh, the men will think they saw a lot more than they actually saw. And that, <laughs> that was his theory of how to do breast nudity in a in a movie. He wrote it into the contract. Here's how much. Here's exactly how much breast nudity you have to do. And so that's how I invented the breast count. Mm-hmm. It needs to be eight. It needs to be eight breasts per movie. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's just math. It can't fight that. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Joe Bob Briggs, for joining the HitCast. Please tune in July 13th for Shutter's The Last Drive-In. It starts at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and it's always a great time to spend with Joe Bob Briggs at the movies. He loves film, and I think it's one of the great things. They're going to just strip away everything and just enjoy cinema, and uh, if there's a breast along the way, so be it. Joe Bob, thanks so much, and uh, hopefully we can check you out down the road. All right. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. Ugh, I have to do laundry when I get home. I have to lug all my clothes over to the washing machine. Then I get to put them in the dryer and accidentally shrink my cashmere sweater again. (laughs) Motorcycles make everything exciting. And when GEICO makes it easy to switch and save on motorcycle insurance, it's even more exciting. I'm gonna fold all my socks into little balls! Yeah! GEICO Motorcycle. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Let's make Vision Zero a reality in D.C. Almost half of D.C.'s traffic fatalities come from impaired driving. These deaths are 100% preventable. Don't let impaired driving ruin your holiday. Always have a plan for a sober ride. Never drive impaired. DC police are arresting drunk and drugged drivers. Drive sober or get pulled over. A message from the District Department of Transportation and Metropolitan Police Department.